Good morning. How's everyone doing? Excellent. Well, hello, my name's Ralph. Um, it's my pleasure to be able to share with you this morning. I've got quite a lot to say, so I'm just going to get on with it, if that's all right. Um, we are in this series called um, Questions Jesus Asked. So we've been um, looking for a couple of months now on loads of different things that um, Jesus says directly in the Gospels. He asks a question. Now, um, these questions aren't a quiz. We're not, um, we're not just giving you lots of answers so that at some point in September when you do the exam, you're going to pass it and you get to stay as part of the church. We're not doing that. Um, it's dynamic. The questions that Jesus asks, isn't, it's not like a static piece of knowledge that you need to find. It's dynamic. It's alive. It's, it's living. It's active. And the whole point of these things um, is for us to engage with them. You know, they're not just, it's not just knowledge to tick off. They're questions for us as a community to grapple with. So actually, what does it look like for us in 21st century Manchester to answer the question that Jesus asked to his disciples 2,000 years, years ago? Because we are still his disciples. They're questions that we need to give permission to comment on ourselves. Actually, questions that we need to hold up against who we are and what we do as a community. And similarly, they're questions that we need to let affect us personally. Actually, this question that Jesus is asking, he's asking it directly to you. No one else can answer it for you. You have to engage with it. You have to respond with it. And so while for the next little while there's going to be a lot of me talking, um, in fact, it's going to be 100% me talking, unless we get any hecklers, actually, um, we're not going to box it off in half an hour. Like, this is just the start of a conversation. It's an invitation into process. To actually, anytime anyone says anything, whether, even if the content is familiar to you, it's an invitation into, actually, how am I doing? What does my walk with Jesus look like? So I just really want to encourage you, just this next little while, what is Jesus saying to you? What is he asking of you? What conversations might you need to go and have afterwards? What activity might you need to change? Where maybe do you need to repent and change how you think about something? Now, I'm not suggesting that I have all the answers, like none of us do, on this topic or any other. Actually, I just want to share something of myself this morning to hopefully encourage you as you follow Jesus. And um, I'm going to read this quote out by C.S. Lewis, who's my hero. And I just find it's helpful to um, anytime any of us are ever creating something, this just takes the pressure off. So let's just listen to this. We cannot see light, though by light we can see things. Statements about God are extrapolations from the knowledge of other things, which the divine illumination enables us to know. I labour these deprecations because, in what follows, my efforts to be clear and not intolerably lengthy may suggest a confidence which I by no means feel. I should be mad if I did. Take it as one man's reverie, almost one man's myth. If anything in it is useful to you, use it. If anything is not, never give it a second thought. I can say whatever I want now. Um, no, the, offer it, the, um, the phrase in there that I want you to get is, if anything is useful, use it. Do something with it. You know, um, James, a brother of Jesus, said this. He said in James 1, um, verse 22, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in the mirror. You see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. 
But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. All right, now that I've Bible bashed you into paying attention, let's crack on. I'm just going to pray. Holy Spirit, thank you that you're here. Thank you that you're moving. Lord, I pray that this morning you would have your way. Whatever it is that you want to do, you would do it. And God, I pray for us as Vine Life and us as a group of individuals that we would hear your voice and we would respond. So Father, just come and move in power, we ask in your name. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in John 13. Um, so you want to turn there. Um, if not, where's it going to be on the screen? So the passage today is um, all about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. So let's read it together. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet, to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. This is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again, sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. So first thing's this, excuse me, what is our question? Well, it's right there in verse 12. Now, um, I use the NLT uh, there just because I find it's really helpful with big chunks because it's quite informal and it's, it's quite easy to take in. But actually, sometimes with um, more particular things, it's good to look at different translations and sometimes the more formal ones that are kind of hard to read over a long period are really great short, in short stints. So um, ESV, which is not particularly formal, but anyway, it, it has a great translation. It says, chapter 13, verse 12, do you understand what I have done to you? That, um, the NLT just says, do you understand what I was doing? And that, um, I mean, they're, they're saying the same thing, but it would be easy to read the first one and think it's just a bit passive. Like Jesus is over here, he's doing something. He's like, hey guys, did you see that? It's really good. Make sure you don't miss it. Whereas this is a lot more direct. Jesus is like, do you understand what I was doing to you? 
not even just for you, not even just around you, but what I was doing to you. So this question, Jesus is, is making us pay attention to something that he did directly to us. He's not asking our opinion on something. He's not making a suggestion. He's not asking a rhetorical question. He's doing something specific and deliberate. So whatever it was, is going to be important. And actually what Jesus did was huge. He washed his disciples' feet. And with the question that follows it, he's underlining in bold and saying, did you get just how significant this is? So let's ask ourselves again. Do you understand what I have done to you? Now, um, as we're reading through the first couple of verses in this passage, they give us a real sense of the scene of what's going on. There's, um, there's, there's, a, there's a real sense of urgency, which makes sense. Like Jesus knows that his time is coming. It's not going to be too long before he's betrayed and actually has to go and die on the cross. And this um, sense of significance, almost the, the gravity of the situation, I think really um, ratchets up just how symbolic this act that Jesus was going to do really is. Um, <clears throat> And it's interesting that if you look at verses three and four, like we have this, um, this supercharged environment. Jesus is like, I know my time's coming. I know the betrayer's here. Like I've loved you right until the end. So I'm going to wash your feet. Which for people who have probably read this passage numerous times, it doesn't seem that shocking because we've heard it and that's what Jesus does. He washes people's feet. But just try and imagine what it was like like this sense of climax building to this, this incredible earth-shattering story. And Jesus says, so I'm going to get up, take my clothes off, wrap a towel around my waist, wash your feet. Now, feet washing is a bit weird. We, uh, once we were doing some outreach on campus and we, um, it was on World Mental Health Day and we had this kind of like well-being thing. And we, it was really cool. We did... Um, we spoke about identity, we did kind of like, um, we did this sort of feature with photos and um, like a meditation thing and, and loads of people engaged with it and it was brilliant. And I thought, oh, we should do a feet washing thing. That'd be cool. Literally no one. Unsurprisingly, in the middle of October in Manchester was prepared to whip their trainers off and let some strangers massage them with some water. Um, it's weird. We don't do it. It's not part of our culture. Um, maybe, obviously, in the church, it's a bit different. Um, at weddings or maybe small groups, you'll have seen it. And, but we get it. We get, the, we get why, and there's some sort of symbolic point to it. And it helps us get over the offense of picking out the sock fluff between people's toes. But in ancient Palestine, it was a lot more normal. You know, people walked everywhere. It was hot. It was dusty it would make sense that feet washing is a thing. Except as well as it being common, it was also, it was a menial job. It was a debasing job. It was a job that only the slaves would do. And when Jesus gets up and when he takes his garment off and when he wraps his towel around his waist, he is putting himself into the role of, of a people group who are despised by both Jew and Gentile. The disciples would have been shocked. So while the actual 
process of foot washing itself wasn't that remarkable. It happened. Probably, I, I don't know, maybe it happened after every meal. But the fact that it was Jesus, the head of the table, who got up, got undressed, became like a slave. That would have been the thing. It's like, whoa, what is going on here? And you can imagine the tension, like the stunned silence. You could probably cut the atmosphere with a knife. And then we get some classic Peter, which is great. It just lightens the mood a little. And it is, it is super helpful because I think he's almost like a, sometimes a caricature, <laughs> like the, the external expression of something that probably everyone else is thinking internally. It's like the enthusiastic puppy bouncing around in the corner that's actually super helpful for all of us. But um, so Peter's response, he's like, absolutely not. No way. Like, I know who you are. You are the flipping Messiah. And no Messiah is going to wash my feet. Absolutely not. And Jesus is like, honestly, it's okay. Just, you'll understand one day. It'll make a ton of sense. Remember when I told you about eating my body and drinking my blood? It's going to be fine. <clears throat> Peter's like, nope, absolutely not. Never, ever are you going to wash my feet. And then Jesus is like, well, actually, only those people who let me wash their feet can be in my gang. And then Peter does his classic 180. He's like, okay, right, do all of me then. Cover me. Pour the ball over my head. Do it all. And it's like, chill out, Peter. Maybe sit the next couple of plays out. And Jesus is like, okay, now I need to explain this. And he brings it back to earth and he says, a person who has bathed all over, this is verse 10, a person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. This is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. Now, do you get the difference? I don't want to get too hung up on this. But actually, I think it's just the fundamental difference between washing your feet and taking a bath. And that is one of them is about maintenance. And one of them is about something more fundamental. So you only need a bath if you're in a, I've never used this phrase in my life before. If you're in a fundamental state of unclean. Ben, it's bath night. You're in a fundamental state of unclean. It's time to go and get washed. But you get what I'm saying? There's like the foot washing, which is like this ongoing maintenance process. And the bath that Jesus says, actually, this is like a, this is a big deal. This is a one-time thing. And you guys, you're clean. You're in a fundamental state of clean because you're with me. So you don't need that. So Peter, chill out. But this foot washing thing, that's something else. And we'll get on to that. But um, so when Jesus says in verse 8, unless I wash you, you won't belong with me. He's showing that there's a connection between washing, being washed, cleanliness. There's a connection between that and being with Jesus. Now, do you think he's talking about hygiene? I, I just don't. And I think he's making, the first point that he's making is that he's reminding the disciples that their status has fundamentally changed and that because they are with him, they are clean. They are cleansed spiritually. They are washed. Interestingly, he says this before the cross and resurrection for another day. But what he's saying is that only I can bring you salvation. Only I can bring you salvation. And in order for you to receive that salvation... You need to trust in me. Trust in the way I save you. 
even if I do something that offends your cultural sensibilities and all of the expectations that you might have had about what a Messiah would look like. You need to trust me. So you're going to need to let me wash your feet. Just like you needed to let me arrive for a parade on a donkey. Or let me eat with sinners and prostitutes. Or just like I told you that you're going to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You need to trust me just like you're going to need to let me die. And I think for us right now, the important question that Jesus is asking is, have you let him cleanse you? Have you put your trust in him as your saviour? Because only he can do it. No award, no experience, no behaviour, no achievement, nothing that we could do for God could bring us salvation, could bring us that spiritual cleansing. The only way is to trust in who Jesus says he was, trust in the forgiveness that he purchased for us at the cross, trust in the power of his resurrection. That is the only way to know salvation. And pride was actually probably seek us to stop doing that. Just like pride stopped Peter being prepared to let the Messiah wash his feet. We think, no, surely we can bring something. Surely we can, we can you know, do some good. We can save ourselves. Like, no, the only way is to trust Jesus. And actually salvation, is, it's scandalous and offensive, the kind of gift it is. The fact that we don't have to do anything. That it's only those who let Jesus wash them that can become clean. But the joy of that is all we have to do is receive. It offends our sensibilities because we don't bring anything to the party. But it's amazing because all we have to do is receive. And it's a definitive act as well. Once you are clean, you're clean. Yes, there may be some maintenance. Yes, you might pick up some dirt on your feet on the road. And there'll be times in all of our walks with God where we feel closer or we feel further away. And we need to come back to him and refresh and renew But fundamentally, when you say yes to Jesus, your status is changed. You stand before God as clean and holy and accepted. And it might be that there's some people in this room that have never done that before. You've never realized just how much God loves you, just how much he accepts you. That actually there was nothing you could do. There's nothing that anyone else could do to you that would disqualify you from that love. And if that is you this morning, I want to encourage you, say yes to Jesus. Even if it feels as strange as letting someone take off their robes and wash your feet, say yes to the salvation that Jesus offers you. So if the first lesson from this passage is how we saved, and it's only by Jesus and it's on his terms, then the second lesson of do you understand what I have done to you is this, how then shall we live? How are we saved by Jesus? Lesson two, how then shall we live? Well, let's look. Let's go back to verse 12. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again, sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I've done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Put simply, Jesus is saying, here's what it looks like to be my disciple. Do what I do. Go back to that James quote. Don't just hear what God says. 
That's stupid. It's like forgetting what you even look like. Do it. And actually, following Jesus often isn't that complicated. It's very hard, but it's not complicated. And it's do what I do. And in this story, the doing is an example of that quality, which especially a couple of thousand years ago, but I'd say even still today, is, is despised as weakness. And it's that quality of humility. So that's what we're going to spend the rest of today looking at. And now if it was shocking enough that Jesus, the head of the table, would get up and wash people's feet, at least you could probably put it down to the fact he was somewhat of a maverick. He did things a bit differently. So maybe that, oh, Jesus just done one. But then the offence, I think, comes when Jesus, he makes it plainly clear. And he says, this kind of thing that I just did, this kind of thing is the kind of, exactly the kind of thing that we all should be doing. And it should be normal for all of those who claim to represent him. So if you want to follow Jesus, you're going to have to take your garment on, wrap a towel around your waist and start washing some feet. Jesus, he, he like... He spells it out a couple of times, and then John adds a little thing at the end just to make sure we get it. But basically, he's, you know, we're the messengers. The, we're the ones sent by Jesus. So why should we consider ourselves more important or like we get to have a pass on some of this stuff? Like Jesus is like, you're not better than me. I, like, I'm still Lord. You're still my, my messengers. But I'm the kind of Lord that, that this is what I'm like, and you need to be like it too. And so just in case you've been duped somehow, you need to know that there is no privilege attached to you being a disciple. Authority, yes. Influence, yes. Power, yes. Amazing, incredible blessing, absolutely. But privilege, no. Privilege being a special advantage for a particular group, no, absolutely not. In fact, the very opposite. And I think we struggle with this. You know, we, uh, we rip Jeremiah 29 out of 11 out of context and stick it on a fridge magnet. Like, everything's going to be absolutely fine all the time. God's good, absolutely. He's the best. He works everything for his good, and I believe that wholeheartedly. But that doesn't mean that we don't have trouble. Similarly, you know, we, we read eight, Romans eight seventeen. you know, it's like, we're children, we're heirs together with Christ, we're heirs of God's glory. If we're sharing his glory, if we're sharing his suffering... I've done, I've preached that verse and missed that bit out. I have done that. Similarly, we'll, we'll read Matthew 28 and we'll, the Great Commission, like all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So go and um, baptize people in my name to the ends of the earth. It's, it's like, yes, I've got all authority in, in heaven and on earth. Jesus had and he passed it to me and I'm the same as him and I've got it. And as the Father sent me, so, so I'm sending you. Yes, that's me, 100%. I don't talk about the foot washing bit very much, or at least not as quickly. And I think it's probably because when it comes to humility, we've still got a bit of a way to go. In fact, probably if we didn't, we'd never be humble. I don't know. Have a think about that. So I want to shift to a different passage now. And um, it's probably one that's going to really help us unpack John 13 because it takes the same lessons and, and, and just expands them over the whole of the world, if I'm not building it up too much. 
Um, and it's probably one of the most important passages in the whole of the New Testament, um, which is Philippians 2. It's one of the very first things that was written about Jesus. So um, it's likely that it was a hymn that was just in circulation among the very first groups of believers. Um, and it was, it was a hymn that Paul was like, oh, yeah, this is good enough. This is going to be in my letter. And it, and it just became um, part of actually how we understand how the early church saw what it meant to follow Jesus and who Jesus was. So, I mean, all the Bible is so significant, but I think this, this passage in particular is a real key because it helps us understand who Jesus is and if we're going to follow him, who we should be. So let's read it together. Sign of verse three. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. So that was Paul, and this next bit is the hymn. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue can declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now I think this passage, it kind of speaks for itself. <laughs> There's not, just look at what Jesus did. Look at what he gave up to come and save you. And look at how God used that and exalted him and glorified him. Now go and do the same. But I think it's going to be helpful if we just zero in on a couple of intriguing features that um, for me really helped me grasp the gravity of this passage. And um, definite shout out to Stephen Backhouse because a lot of this is nicked from him. But um, So if anything sounds intelligent, I probably stole it. A bit of false humility for you there on the stage. Um, so verse six. Jesus is equal with God. Now, that's a pretty remarkable statement. Jesus was equal with God. And the, the Greek word that is used for this, it was two words, is um, isotheo. It literally just means the same as God, equal with God. And it's interesting because actually the isotheo was also the word that um, the Romans used to describe Caesar. So there was there's a whole kind of cult around who Caesar was, that he was almost like a god. Like the reason he could rule was because he was, he was like a demigod. And so he would, they would use this word isotheo to describe Caesar, like he was the isotheo. So the fact that the early Christians who would live in this system, you know, they've got coins in their back pocket, which have got a picture of Caesar on that say isotheo. The fact that they say that the isotheo is Jesus they're already making a huge political point. They're not just saying Jesus is my special personal friend. Jesus is, you know, just makes me feel better when I'm sad. They're saying Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Like all my allegiance is to him. His way is the way. And doesn't matter whose face is on the coin in my pocket, he is my Lord. He is the one who is rearranging the world to look like he always intended, and I'm going to be part of that. 
So if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is king, the question then is, what kind of king is Jesus? What is he like? In the second bit of verse 6, where he says, uh, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Other translations say grasped, that sense of, that that sort of motion. Um, The Greek word for that is harpagmon. And it was um, this idea that you, you gather up everything that is available to you and you bring it to yourself and you use it for your advantage. And that's probably not always like a nefarious thing, but actually it's that motion of bringing whatever you have around you, bringing what you have, gathering it together and using it for your advantage. Stephen had this great analogy of it's kind of like a politician. You know, as they walk into a room or like a fundraiser or something, they'd, um, they'd go from place to place and they would, um, they would gather up support, they would gather up finance, they would gather up um, just general political equity in the room and they would gather it behind them to advance their particular political cause. Like that was the motion of Harpagmon, was that grasping and using. Now hopefully, that's a good, like, hopefully politicians are doing that for a good reason. I'll let you be the judge of that, but it's that, it doesn't matter that it's that motion of I'm going to take what's around me, bring it into myself and use it to progress the thing that I'm doing. It's that. And we do it all the time in everything, big things, little things. You know, we, we grasp whatever power, whatever influence, whatever reputation, whatever um, resources we have access to, and we leverage them for our benefit. Again, hopefully that is a really positive thing most of the time. What's funny is actually, I think as a society, we've gone a bit crazy with it. Like, you know, we're happy to do all that stuff for anyone if they pay us right. There's a whole industry on Instagram around being an influencer, like harpagmoning. If you pay me, I'm going to get everything else around me and I'm going to use it for your benefit. And it's this idea of maximizing everything that we can get our hands on. So I think words like efficiency and profit, and utility, and fulfilled potential, all of these things, I'm not saying are inherently bad, but I think they're relatives of Harpagmon. So when I, that's what I want you to have in your mind, that kind of motion. Because Jesus, out of anyone, he had the most of that. He was the Isotheo. He was the equal with God. If we think we have access to good stuff, if we think we have leverage or influence or things that we can exploit, how much more would Jesus have? But what this passage tells us is that Jesus, the Isotheo, he doesn't do that. He doesn't grasp it. He doesn't bring it all into himself. Instead, he does something else. He does kenosis. And it's this idea of he empties himself. So the translation, I, it's verse 7. Um, he gave up his divine privileges. He emptied himself. He poured them out. He could have, he didn't use them to his advantage. He emptied himself. He poured them out. And it doesn't mean that he stopped being God. It just means that all the divine privilege, all the advantage that would have come with being God, he just pours it out. He lets it fall to the floor his glory, his reputation. He wastes it all for us. You could even think of it another way as it's like he chose to limit himself. 
Like there was space that he could fill, but he chose not to. He put a self-imposed limit on himself. And whereas Harpagmon gathers everything for its advantage, Kenosis holds back to make space for something else. Jesus could have partied for eternity with the Trinity. They were in perfect relationship. They were having a great time. He'd have loved it. But he wanted us there too. And he was prepared to make space for us, despite what it would cost him. Because humility didn't work out that great for him, really, if you think about his experience. You know, he became like a slave. He became like one who was despised and hated. He had to deny his own will in favor of God's. You know, not my will, but yours be done, he said. He, wasn't, he had to say no to his best life now. He died like a criminal on a cross. Like the, and the sheer pain of it would have been bad enough, but actually the, um, the religious and social stigma that comes with that would have been huge. There was a bit in the Jewish law that says, cursed is someone who dies on a tree. Like Jesus' death was cursed and it was at the hands of an unclean, oppressive regime. Like, and in all honesty, humility is probably going to be similarly uncomfortable for us at times as well. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be hard. And we need to remember what Jesus said. We're not greater than our master. We need to do as he does. So this morning, would you allow me to ask, as I ask myself, what are you doing with your privilege? What are you doing with the advantage that comes with being who you are? Are you enjoying it, exploiting it, or are you setting it aside for the benefit of someone else? And when was the last time you held yourself back? When did you actually put a limit on something? When did you genuinely put someone before yourself and not just because you benefited from it? I know these are big questions and I'm not not standing here telling you that I'm doing all these things. But I just feel like these are questions we need to ask We can't read through texts about Jesus washing our feet and wave our hands in the air and be like, oh, it's amazing he loves us without being prepared to do the same. Because we are followers of Jesus. We're not just believers in the theory about Jesus. We are Christians, mini Christs. We represent him to the world. Like when the world sees us, they should see him. So all of this stuff, it's our blueprint for what life should look like. And it's, I, th- I think it's easy to assume sometimes that because we're good Christians, we're probably humble and we probably do all this stuff. And you know what? It might be true. Um, but, or it's similarly, it's, it's easy to get overwhelmed and be like, oh man, this is just huge. I mean, literally everything I'm doing is wrong. And um, if that's what you're thinking, that's not what I'm trying to get across. Um, there are big things and there are fundamental shifts that need to happen. And maybe even this morning, God's nudging you around specific things that you might need to make some drastic changes over. But similarly, it could also be just as simple as inviting someone over for lunch that you've never met before, even though your house is a mess and you haven't got any nice food in. There's an element of humility required in that. 
there's a space required to make for that for someone else in your life. Can you limit yourself to create space for them? Can you humble yourself so that they can experience what you've experienced? So don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Because here's the great part. This is how God wins. This is how God wins. Jesus is exalted. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is how God wins. Not with the sword, not with political power, not with leveraging influence, but with humility and self-limitation. And sacrifice for something more than what you can see right in front of you. He wins with love. So go back to that question. Do you understand what I've done to you? Do you understand how Jesus has made you clean? And do you understand the way that he's shown you to live? I think both of them come in ways that we maybe wouldn't have expected. But it's how God wins, and it is the best. And every time that we choose him, that we deny ourselves, that we take up our cross, that we say his way over our way, it creates space for him to move and for his kingdom to come on this earth. And there is nothing more enjoyable and more fulfilling, as you will all have experienced, when you see God's kingdom invade the earth. Um, why don't you stand? I'm going to pray for you.